Hello, everybody. I'm Brent. I'm Darko. And this is Fede with the DevNull Podcast. This is episode nine of the DevNull Podcast. In today's very special episode, Darko will be talking to us about quantum computing and its application for future security. In addition, we discuss Bitcoin, NFTs, memes, we catch up on the SolarWind supply chain hack, and Clubhouse. All of this and more coming up right after this. So, Bitcoin. Oh, what man, a crazy, yeah. crazy ride we've been on. So, the last time I think we talked about Bitcoin, we were in the $40,000 range for Bitcoin. Something um, like that, I think, yeah. Yeah, it's gone in just the last few weeks on a on another kind of roller coaster ride that I think is becoming part of the signature of Bitcoin. But it went, shot all the way up to just this side of 60,000, like somewhere around 58, yeah. 58 um, middle 58. 59. Yeah. And then kind of had a nice little uh, correction that they they talk about. If you if you look at some of the channels around Bitcoin, you know, all the hodlers out there always talk about how Bitcoin is susceptible to these big 20 to 30 percent resets. And that actually happened. So it came down into like the middle 50s. And then, you know, I don't want to say the bottom fell out because we're still way higher than where the year started. Um, but it seems to be pushing its way back up today. It was like yesterday it was 43,000 and today it's like just a couple hundred dollars short of 50,000 again. Um, yeah. The reason I bring it up, I, I wanted to, to kind of bounce this off of you. You know, we, we sort of talked about thinking about Bitcoin in, in a slightly different way. And, and this was a mental shift for me too. Um, before I was thinking about Bitcoin as like currency, like you're going to use it to buy a pack of gum at the store. And it seems like a lot of folks out there um, got to this realization way faster than I did. Uh, Bitcoin as a store of value. So what's happened since the last time we talked about this? Um, Michael Saylor's uh, MicroStrategy went and raised another billion dollars and put all of that into Bitcoin at around $52,000 per Bitcoin. Wow. Which is crazy to me. So all this is on their website. You can look at this. So their their like average Bitcoin price um, right now is somewhere around twenty nine thousand. So they bought you know back when it was like ten or whatever or twelve, and then again at fifty. <laughs> so their like yeah. average price is around twenty nine thousand. And obviously Elon Musk, we saw put in a you know a bunch of money uh, from like the treasury of. Um, of Tesla uh, mm-hmm. as a way to try to like hedge against inflation and those sorts of things. You know, I don't want to become like, and I, and I certainly don't want this podcast to become like, you know, the Bit- Bitcoin lovers guild, but it's just certainly interesting over the course of a couple of months, how rapidly um, people's minds are changing about, you know, the value of Bitcoin and how you might potentially use it. I don't know. Have you been, have you been mm-hmm. tracking this Darko? Dude. Uh, I mean, it's crazy when you think about it, how one person can dictate the market so so much. Like one tweet from Elon Musk, like skyrocketed the value of Bitcoin. And then and Bill, Doge. Gates, and then <laughs> Bill, Bill Gates comes up and he's like, well, I don't have any Bitcoins. Boom, the price goes down. <laughs> like seriously, like it's this like select group of people that whatever they say, it's like, there's so much influence going around that it's crazy to think about, but yeah, I've been following Bitcoin. And like, since the last time that we talked about this and like cryptocurrency, I actually got a little bit into that. Like I made a, made an account, started getting like some altcoins here and there, like trying to track this more carefully. It's interesting. It's addictive. Now all the time I just go and check the app every 10 minutes. Like, is everything green in the plus side, like going up? I, I think that's like something to be a little bit afraid of, right? So yeah. think about think about investing before cryptocurrency. Um, you know, I, I'm ultra conservative with my money. I always have been. So yeah. investing for me was sort of like, you know, find an index fund and put your money into it and just let it sit there for 30 years, right? And it's yeah. not exciting. 
But if you look backwards over the course of like five or 10 years, you're like, holy crap, that's kind of cool. I made some money for doing nothing. You know, my money is working for me, you know? Yeah. Bitcoin and and like cryptocurrency is a different game. It's like a worldwide 24 by 7 casino because yep. there's no market timing. You know, the, the market doesn't open and then close. It is literally up to the minute, constantly moving. And, and you can, I think you can get really caught up in that. You know, there's just kind of like this addiction quality to it. And, and like you said, you know, having having an app on your phone, I actually think that's the worst possible thing. If you're looking at this as an investment, not trading, yeah. as investing, yeah. the worst thing you could do, I think, is have an app on your phone because at the minute your mood is dictated by whether you're not like generating money or losing money. Exactly. How horrible. <laughs> exactly. No. Horrible. I'm telling you, like you have had it for some time now and it's like every 15 minutes, check it, like prices up or down. Not that I know that much about it, that it makes too so much difference to me in my investing or something but it's just like to me it's red or green like that yeah. that's the good or bad for me like are the prices like the percentages in green or not it, it's interesting so just last week um janet yellen who is the uh, treasury secretary for the U us of a the good old us of a um you know made some comments about how uh, there's a couple of reasons why Bitcoin is a bad thing. You know, one is obviously the price volatility. You know, you can look at a chart and just realize that that is that is kind of you're in for a penny, in for a pound if you decide to put your money into this because it is highly volatile. Yeah. The other thing she mentioned that I thought was pretty interesting was the like energy required to not only mine for for the Bitcoins themselves, which all the Bitcoins will not be mined until 2150, I believe it is. So there's a long ways to go. So, yeah. Yeah. And it gets like progressively harder the more time goes on. I think uh, last thing I saw, there was about 18 million of the 21 million possible Bitcoins already mined, of which 4 million are lost forever. You know, that's kind of like the people that have lost their wallets or, you know, yeah. through their USB stick. That's, or that's probably what happened to my original one. Um, you know, so there is a really like limited supply. So a couple of numbers that I thought were interesting. And again, no financial advice here. Who knows what the heck is going to happen with Bitcoin? Of the, of, the, of the available 21 million, 4 million, they say are lost forever. Okay. Yeah. So that leaves us with 17 million. Um, there is not enough Bitcoin for all of the millionaires in the US of A to have even one half of a Bitcoin. And okay. me, that's like, hmm, <laughs> really, really interesting. Um, anyway, I don't want to spend all of our time talking about uh, talking about Bitcoin. It's certainly, yeah. it's certainly interesting. You know, March has been historically the month where the big, like, you know, uh, the big, like, drops in price has tended to happen. I think the one in 2017 that was pretty significant came in March. And well, here we are. It's the first day of March as we're recording this. So we'll see yep. what happens there. There's another technology that um, caught my eye because, you know, this is a little bit like peering down the, the rabbit hole. Like when you start talking about crypto, then you get into things like DeFi. And then all the rage right now is this, this technology they call NFT, uh, yep. non-fungible tokens. Um, it's pretty new, but there's basically this idea that you can um, provably make something unique. So let's, for example, say I'm a digital artist and I, and I render some amazing piece of digital artwork. I can stamp that with like a non-fungible token ID. And then I guess the idea is that that becomes something that's tradable and will have value over time. And people are even doing this with memes. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I don't quite understand the value there because, you know, knowing how computers work like you do, Darko, it's, you know, who cares if it's provably unique? You can just like make a copy of it, you know, and send yeah. it out. Like <laughs> mo most memes have a shelf life that's pretty short. Um, so I, I'm not really sure how that tech will be used, but there's a lot of folks that are interested in it. Um, I know like the NBA is doing some things or some of the teams on the NBA are doing things with like, you know, specific uh, photographs of like um, basketball players or, or, or um, like plays or, or like scenes or whatever they're trying okay. to play, get into that NFT space. But um, anyway, that's, I think we'll do it for crypto and you have anything else you want to dive into there. No, but I was just going to make a, make a remark about how, <clears throat> 
there's a new tech, like relatively uh, groundbreaking, maybe even. We don't know the capabilities of it. The first thing we use it for is memes. <laughs> I mean, that just that just hilarious to me. I'm sorry, but... Well, but I'm glad you brought that up. Like, I wanna I wanna opine if I'm allowed for a minute about memes. Um, they're great for a laugh, right? You see a yeah. meme, you have a chuckle, you send it to your friends if it's really good. I want to talk about that for a second. Like, I had this realization the other day. Um, memes are like a new form of communication that I think people yeah. are going to be studying for a long time, right? Because think about it. It's a photo with a little bit of text on it. And you can yeah. convey so much information with that like Definitely. seemingly small piece of content, like contextual information about what's happening in the world right now, you know, uh, humor, um, anger, all kinds of things. Just It's a really interesting thing. I'm wondering you know, sometime in the future, if, uh, people are going to look back, you know, people that, that, um, that study <laughs> that sort of thing, what do, what do they call that science, that science? It starts with an A. I can't think of it right now. Um, I don't, I don't, it'll, know it. it'll, yeah, it'll come to me later, I'm sure. But, uh, um, I think that like the creation of the meme and, and how quickly people glommed onto the meme will be studied for some time. And here's the funny thing of, about it. Like not all of the world is on the internet. Not everyone know, knows about memes. So there are yeah. whole like sections of 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 people on this globe that li- like have never don't even understand it, have never seen it. Like are missing all of that access to information. Just sort of blows my mind a little bit to to think like, about that. If you you know that old saying that a picture is worth a thousand words, like a meme is worth ten thousand words. Like it it conveys ten times as much information. That's and, it. Or more, I think. Right. Because you can sum up everything that's happening in that moment in time. Right. Yeah. And like all of that goes with the meme. It's crazy amounts of, of data. Yeah. And just a just a joke. I actually have uh, have that on my CV, on my resume. When languages I have Macedonian, native, English, German, and then I have meme fluent. <laughs> meme fluent. <laughs> That's quite yeah. brilliant. Yeah, and I've realized that I've I am getting a lot of the news about the stuff that is happening today in the world from memes. Like I open up something like Nine Gag or something like that, and there's like a bunch of when you see like uh, a lot of memes on the same topic one after the other, it sort of tells you that something's going on at the moment, and you sort of filter through that, and that's like an unbiased source to a source of uh source of news <laughs> i i knew i would think of the name anthropology so anthropologists yeah. of the future yeah. will be definitely studying this for exactly what you're talking about the impact is i think a lot wider than people give it credit for when you just think of and like laugh at a meme there's so much more going on there so anyway definitely. that's uh, yeah <laughs> that's, that's our take on it Okay, let's move right along. So a little bit of an update um, for those that listen to our show about the SolarWinds hack. There's been a, a little bit of new information that's come out recently. Um, you know, some executives at SolarWinds were testifying before Congress uh, to, to help Congress get their heads around how one, you know, company getting hacked can cause the amount of devastation that has happened from that. And, you know, the, the list of three-letter agencies and four-letter agencies of the U.S. government that were impacted by this continues to grow. Um, you know, I think in this latest article that you sent me, Darko, uh, they were talking about NASA and yep. um, the FAA. So, you know, these are important agencies that have control over things that f- hurtle through the air at significant <laughs> speeds. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's it's less theoretical in my mind about the damage that can be done by messing around with systems that those agencies can control. Um, digging into this actual article uh, that's on, I think it's the Hacker News. We'll put it on in the show notes so you all can read it. Um, the supply chain attack originated in build servers that create the like package software that SolarWinds then provides to their customers. As a refresher, that's how... Uh, how all of these companies, we're talking FireEye, Microsoft, um, 
you know, all the government agencies that we talked about in the other show, as well as this one, were then made susceptible to the SolarWinds hack because they took trusted software. And again, trusted meaning it was signed by the SolarWinds yep. built process as originating from SolarWinds. Very important step there. Turns out there's a build server that um, had a password of SolarWinds123. Perfect. And yeah, so, but hey, we've all been in, at places where, you know, some pretty critical systems are protected by even less than that. I'm not going to say admin. the admin, admin, password, you know, one, two, three, all kinds of crazy stuff people do. Um, doubly worse in this particular case is that not only was the password SolarWinds123, which isn't that difficult to guess, it was also checked into a GitHub repo for a short period of time. Double damage. Double damage, right? Because everything that goes into GitHub, unless you're extra careful, is searchable. And and there are scripts out there and people that all they do all day long is mine GitHub for you know people making a mistake or not knowing better, um, which is sometimes the the issue. The issue I have with this though is not that this happened because you know people that work in this industry know that. Um, it's not that difficult to mess up in this regard, right? Yeah. A password that's simple, that's probably shared amongst a group of people. Again, that's a no-no, but it happens. Um, that password accidentally getting inserted into a configuration file, and then you know maybe somebody uh, messes up their .gitignore, and boom, that's suddenly checked into a repo. Again, it happens, right? Yeah. This is not... Um, this is not that unusual, unfortunately. The part that I have issue with here is what happened during this, this hearing. Um, and the hearing was in front of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform and Homeland Security, so that's a mouthful. Yep. Uh, their CEO testified and stated that this password was set up by an intern. <laughs> Always the usual suspect. Right, always blame, blame it on the blame, blame it on the poor person who is trying to build their career and does not probably know everything they need to know. I yeah. mean, hey, you're starting out as an intern. My issue here, and and it sounds like if you look at what happened, and I actually did listen to the hearing clip, the guy wasn't like totally throwing the intern under the bus, but he was kind of he was kind of dodging and saying like, well, you know, we're solar winds, we're secure by design, and all this, but we had this like youngster in here and this is what you know they did yeah. i take i take a lot of issue with that because to me what this reflects is not that an intern makes mistakes because guess what of your entire staff guess who's probably the most likely to make mistakes the newest person <laughs> in their you know first days uh, or first years on the job interns right yeah, so definitely. what this tells me is that it's a gap in in their process and how they think and talk and act about security. From my perspective, you know, why wasn't that intern, you know, kind of pulled aside and said, hey, you know, we are we are a networking and infrastructure and security company. Here are some things that you need to know um, or, you know why don't they have systems that are designed to sort of catch these types of things? You know, for me, it's just kind of unacceptable to say that, like, if I were in this guy's shoes and I'm sure he was feeling the heat and the fire was hot, <laughs> I guarantee it was, I think I would have gone kind of down the line of like, you know what, you're absolutely right. You know, this reflects a gap in our process that we need to do better and educate our entire team on. You know, I have personally seen, and Darko, I'm going to shut up so you can talk and get a word in eventually. <laughs> I have personally seen extremely experienced people. We're talking two decades of software development make make mistakes like this. It happens. It happens to all of us, you know. So to kind of single out one type of individual and say, "Hey, it was the intern's fault," to me is just a. It's just really crappy. I think for us all in the industry. I don't. Know, what are your thoughts? I I completely agree with you. I mean, to, to blame it, we never we never want to play the blame game. Like it's been. I mean, I don't have two decades of software experience, uh, much less. But to me, it's always been like this motto that we have uh, at Tarmac, for example. Like, if you make a mistake or something breaks, own it, fix it, prevent it. 
that's it like don't don't play the blame game it's 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 not gonna do anybody any good if you're just shifting blame from one person or the other instead of just owning the owning the problem and fixing it the problem that i have with solar vents is that they come off with this statement we're secure by design and then you don't do the first thing that you do in any security measures that you take which is set up a password policy like if you set up a password policy that it has to be 16 characters long it has to have often numeric signs like uppercase lowercase that significantly lowers the choice and if you want to be extra security then you implement some kind of uh, what was it called the dictionary prevention mechanism so you cannot have like real words in your password so that kind of take takes all the all the blame away from the intern to every single security person that is assigned to that so they can come out with that statement hey we're secure by design i mean i i agree 100% you know the the article that we read and sort of shared on this you know they talked about that solar winds new stance is secure by design and what you're talking about policy that's enforceable not policy that gets put in the employee's handbook but policy yeah. that's enforceable by you know the OS or your you know uh, IAM rules or whatever it may be that is secure by design anything exactly. else is sort of just words <laughs> I mean, the other thing they could do too is just widely adopt YubiKeys and get give every person a YubiKey and that YubiKey password. I'm telling you, man, there's no way you're hacking that thing. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's yeah. pretty it's pretty dense. But, but that's um, also a way. But that's that's uh, measurements. That's uh, things that you put in your system to prevent these things from happening. So you don't you don't hope that everybody's going to listen to your advice to have a very secure password. You make that so. That's yeah. how you become something by design. If you want to be, I don't know, cloud developer by design, you need to know how cloud cloud providers work. You cannot work with a with a hardware in your local basement and train yourself for that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's actually really key because, again, most businesses out there, especially the larger ones, you're going to have individuals on the team that have varying levels of exposure to like security posture. So why leave that up to interpretation or anybody's guess? You know, what I've seen historically, because a lot of companies, especially here in the US, um, approach the security stuff from from a like preemptive litigious angle. For example, yeah. in the employee handbook, it will say something like, I promise to do everything I can to be secure, right? But doesn't give any tooling. It doesn't really give mm -hmm. any like enforceable policy. It just it sort of like makes the employee responsible for what happens if yeah. there's a breach. And in this case, like with this intern, that's kind of what I'm guessing is is what you know is what this guy is saying is like. Well, hey, we as a company have a policy that you need to be secure. This person wasn't, so <laughs> clearly not our fault. Yeah. <laughs> And, that, and that's just the wrong way to think about it. If you really care about about security and you want to build it in by design, what you described, Darko, is the only way to go uh, and and yep. be able to sleep at night without passing the buck. Okay, enough on solar winds. I mean, that's an evolving thing. Whenever Congress gets involved, you know, expect to see a bunch of stupid stuff happen because, well, yeah. let's just say that our congressional leaders don't understand this stuff very well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think we're going to have an update on this again in a, maybe a couple of episodes. I think we still haven't seen the, the end of this. Yeah, we have not. Okay, I want to move right along before we get to Darko's topic, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, I want to talk about this app that is available for iOS only right now called Clubhouse. So it's been a couple of weeks since our last show, and I was planning on doing a kind of a braggadocious like hey i got access to clubhouse and you didn't because it's definitely a cool kids club yeah um lo and behold in just like the last few days some pretty dark um things got released about what clubhouse is and what's actually happening there so for those that aren't aware clubhouse is an application that you can uh, download from the apple i store or the yeah the apple store 
install it on your iPhone and it's like real time voice. It's organized into these rooms that are that like have a topic and you can join and listen. And in some cases, if you're invited, you might, you know, be able to speak and whatnot. It's attracted a lot of really big names. Um, Elon Musk had a uh, had a clubhouse chat going on. There's lots of investor types um, like Jason Calacanis and, you know, people in the valley. Um, Oprah has something, I think. Yeah, I think she did something there, too. <laughs> you know, it's it's largely geared towards Silicon Valley, right, which is a yeah. bit of an echo chamber living in the Midwest like I do. Um you know, it's kind of hard to get into those circles and unless you uh, unless you're a cool kid. I'm not a cool kid, but I'm lucky that I have some cool kid friends. Thank you, Aaron. I know you're not listening, but Aaron <laughs> uh, got me an invite. And so I downloaded it, um, started listening in. And there is just a bunch of things going on there. It kind of reminds me of back in the day, those like party lines that you could join. Like if you knew a phone number, you could dial it and they would charge like $2.99 yeah. a minute, but you'd be connected in a room with like, you know, who knows, hundreds of people or whatever. It's kind of like that. I mean, the app is pretty crappy. The user interface is horrible, <laughs> but the people that are hanging out there are like of note, right? So I kind of wanted to, to check it out. So I did, you know, I'm sorry to say I lost interest pretty quickly. You know, I, I just don't unfortunately have the time to stay up all night listening to people talk and, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Like, I really like the podcast format because I can queue them up and listen to it when I have time. And Clubhouse is a bit more like you have to be there um, kind of thing. It requires a lot of attention. Like It, it does. Yeah. I had, you know, I'm not going to lie. I had a little bit of FOMO. Uh, that's a fear of missing out. Like the younger people understand that. Um, and certainly it's full of, of young, you know, people like trying to establish yeah. themselves, I think. Anywho, fast forward to just like a couple of days ago, it turns out that this app that is all the rage and has, you know, over a billion dollar valuation now suddenly um, is uh, using some technology from China. And, like there's a platform out there that allows you to do voice at this kind of scale in real time. Um, it's in China and it's been hacked multiple times already. So there are people surprise, out there that surprise. have figured out. Yeah, surprise, surprise. There are people out there that have figured out how to stream these conversations, um, whether they're public or private in the app, to YouTube um, to download that stuff. Uh, China itself has access to these recordings. Um, you know, very similar to like if you remember the the app TikTok. It's yep. kind of a similar arrangement. So there's China as a nation sort of listening in to these conversations, the, you know, metadata, everything that you have about your user, plus, you know, who knows what that app is accessing on your phone, just like with TikTok, who actually knows. Um, and there's China in the background, just sort of sucking all that information in. So again, for those listeners, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want to scare you away from it. it. This was more of a revelation because, you know, I don't think people were aware that a the app was kind of insecure and people are sucking content and and recordings out of it and then b you know there's china sort of again in the background similar to TikTok, just sort of listening in and learning so so what you're saying basically is that some people figure out how to get the live um the live conversations out of clubhouse and turn them into podcasts <laughs> yeah it's kind of like that well so here, here's here's a good story. Um, Elon Musk went on Clubhouse and there were so many people that wanted to listen to that guy talk. Yeah. Because he's kind of like real world Tony Stark, right? I mean, yeah. that's what he is, that um that it crashed and, and there were only a certain number of people that could get in. Well, somebody smart figured out, like, hey, I can live stream this over to YouTube. Yeah. I read. I read, I did not witness because I was asleep. <laughs> I was out of the country when this was happening and it was, you know, middle of the night. Um, I read that the YouTube stream had more listeners than the Clubhouse app. Wow. That, which is pretty interesting. That's, that's crazy to think about, man. I mean, when you, when you think about all these like new apps that come out and like make this sudden burst of users and like explosion of, of, expansion and everything it's like how how sure are we that 
that thing is secure enough. I mean, it happened every single time that we saw a burst like that. What happened to Zoom at the start of the pandemic, right? Suddenly, within a month, they get, what was it, like 400 million users or some crazy number like that. A couple of months later, people started, uh, what was the term? Zoom bombing meetings? Yeah. Like coming into random meetings. Security. Like, like <laughs> yeah, so security was not, not good enough. Then TikTok comes in. Then Clubhouse. Like, I'm wondering if people need to start like paying more attention to this and like whenever a new app comes in like seriously think about what you're what you're doing like before enlisting into that like before giving it all out access to everything on your phone and like i'm not saying you should read the terms and conditions because nobody ever reads those but like well, they're designed to not be read. You can't you can't read them and make sense of them, especially if you're on your phone, right? So, yeah. like companies again in the U.S., like companies are litigious. You know, they'll say, "Well, you sign," and and it's true. I did. I did click sign, but I also didn't read 200 pages on my phone while I'm waiting to you know do whatever. I think you're exactly right. So let, let's talk about Clubhouse, and and the same applies to TikTok and and the other apps that you talked about previously. I think the posture needs to be out of the gates. Like you can't trust it because let, let's like paint the business picture for a second. This is a company that is not making money yet. As far as I can tell, they're a startup. They have yeah. a, over a billion dollar valuation simply because of the user base. How could they possibly be secure? They don't, they don't have the resources to build an app in no. a secure way. It's not cheap. You know that Darko. Yeah. So my my perspective, and again, I had my brain switched off when I when I installed Clubhouse, and you know, I just again, I was following the cool kids. I wanted to know yeah, what was up. Exactly. There. But when I when I pause and actually think about it, I have to ask myself, like, how could it possibly be secure to a standard that makes me comfortable, given where they are in the arc of the development of this application? Heck, just the user interface itself, when I first saw it, should have been a clue that they don't have developer resources <laughs> that yeah. are up. To task or the time or whatever. So, I mean, I feel like, I feel like that's gotta be it when there's something new that's in all of the papers and everyone's like raving about it and it's new, you just have to assume it's not ready. Yeah. In one way, definitely. shape or form. Definitely agree. Because no matter how much of an, of a boom like that you get, like sudden expansion, you cannot, even if you get like a funding of a billion dollars that they get right now, even even that you cannot hire people. Even if you hire them, you you hire tomorrow a hundred new developers. You need time to onboard them, train them, make them like organize them, and then you can start seeing the effect of that. So it cannot happen overnight. And these expansions like happen exponentially fast. Like I don't think there's any company out there that can that can handle that kind of expansion without sacrificing and cutting some corners during that development, like security. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, it, and it's sad to think about that security is most often the one that gets uh, sacrificed in these things. Like it's not, it's not adding fancy features or uh, integrations to Giphy or Tenor for sending GIFs or memes or whatever, it's usually the security part that gets sacrificed. It's always like, we'll handle that later. You can't sell it and you can't yeah. raise money on it. So yeah, exactly. I get it. If it, if it was a if it was like part of the feature set that people were going to, like we've seen apps where this is the case. For example, um, let's talk about ProtonMail for just a, like a 30 seconds here. ProtonMail is a, is a, um, a secure mail like alternative to Gmail and they actually charge you money, <laughs> but yeah. it's part of what you're paying for is the security of it. So like there are some apps where, you know, security is part of the feature set, but most are not Facebook, for example, you know, obviously clubhouse, Twitter security yeah. is not what like the product you hope they're doing it, but you know, chances are they're not unless they have to. So Anyway, um, that's kind of uh, that's kind of it on on the market recap side of of this discussion. There's been a lot of things that have happened since our last show, and and certainly this time of year, I think a lot more are going to happen as we get into the spring and the summertime. But I want to 
now transition over into more of like the feature length discussion because Darko has teed up something pretty amazing here. It's pretty geeky, but I love this stuff. So with that, Darko, why don't you uh, why don't you introduce <laughs> us to your topic and we'll um, we'll get going. That's some pretty high uh, high standards that you set for me there. I hope I can only the highest for our Macedonian. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So yeah, I want to talk about that one topic that probably everybody's heard of because of Hollywood. So whenever in Hollywood movies there's some somebody needs to do something that's scientifically unexplainable. What they do is they call it, they put a quantum adjective to it, and then suddenly it becomes uh, logical. Suddenly everything is possible. Time travel, I don't know, teleportation, mind, mind reading, whatever. Everything is a quantum state in Hollywood. So yeah, uh, I've, been, I've been following quantum computing for, for a few years now. And uh, an article caught my caught my eye a couple of days ago that I read. It's not a new article, but I sort of stumbled upon it now. It's basically around uh, quantum computing and cryptography, around encryption. It's very very technical, very geeky. But I'm gonna get to that point. And well, when when I, let's just stop there for a second. This is important because typically when people think about quantum computing. They think about like, well, all of our security models are out the door now because why? Yeah. So that is both true and false at the same time. So yes, quantum computers have a different way of thinking, a different way of working that is going to render some current uh, encryption protocols useless. So... Let me try to break this down in a very, very simple way. So the most common the, the most common cryptography encryption algorithm that we use today in the tech world is RSA or the public-private key pair. That those private and public key pairs are um, generated by multiplying very large prime numbers. And just to give you a sense of how large these prime numbers is. The currently the highest known prime number, which was discovered, I think, two years ago by uh, some engineer in the US, is it starts with a four and ends with a one and has 23 million digits between those two. That's a big number. How, <laughs> yeah. many, how many commas, if you were to like write that <laughs> for the rest of your life, probably? Yeah, pretty, pretty much, yeah. So it's a pretty big number. So if you take these very large numbers, like maybe not to that scale, but um, very large numbers, multiply them, do some calculations, you get this public-private key pair that, that's used for encryption. And the for current, uh, for current standards, that that thing is pretty good. Like it works nice. You would need a serious computational engine, like serious computing power to break that encryption. But what happens now when quantum computers enter the field? Well, they do things significantly faster than classic computers on some levels. Like just to get thing, one thing straight, quantum computers are never going to replace regular PCs. You will never be able to play Dota on your quantum computer at home. Like I was just that, about to ask if I could play Warzone on a quantum computer and would no, that give me any advantages? No, and I, I don't think even that can run Crisis in 4K. So, <laughs> but yeah, so that thing is never going to happen. So now that that's clear, quantum computers have very specific purposes. Like they can be used for for things that normal computers are bad at. So to give you an analogy, like if you give a computer, um, if you try to give a normal computer to run a simulation on how a sap is going to flow down the side of a tree, it's going to do that very easily because it's a linear equation. There's fixed points and everything. Nothing's so chaotic. So it, it cannot calculate it. But if you want to track like airflow over 
wings on your airplane. I know you're a pilot, Brent, but so if you if you want to try and like uh, simulate that airflow and what's going to happen around your plane as you're flying, that becomes very difficult because as as the air is flowing, it's actually changing the environment in which it's flowing, which in turn is changing the air that it's flowing over the wing. So it's like constantly evolving. It's much more chaotic. So this is where quantum computers actually come in. So these are the type of stuff that they're actually really good, like weather forecasting. One of the toughest things there is chemical reactions. Like these are the type of stuff that quantum computers will be used. What? So I, I always thought one of the strengths of quantum computing was that, like with with traditional computing, like the the way that you would go about breaking a public private key pair is by brute force, right? And you would basically try, try, try until you found and were able to succeed. For for like standard computers, we're talking decades worth of computing, even for the fastest one. Yeah. With quantum computing, I thought the advantage was that it could do multiple like states simultaneously is that is yeah. that sort of true yeah it's true because in in the way that a normal uh, a normal computer works we all know it's zeros and ones right well a quantum or a qubit that that it's used in in quantum computing can be half of a zero or can be one third of a one like that kind of value. So it can be both zero and one to a certain degree at the same point at the same time. So that gives you a lot more options. Like it's basically if you take um to give you another analogy, like if you take a coin and it's either heads or tails, but then if you spin it on the table while it's spinning, what what sides is it on? Like it's sort of both at the same time. Right. And there's yep. actually a really good video. I'm going to drop it in the show notes of this researcher from IBM. And she explains quantum computing to five different levels to like a child, teen, uh, university graduate, uh, physics professor. And I don't know what was the, the last one, but it's like a really cool way to, to sort of explain this. I'm, I'm sure like my understanding is probably between child and teen. So I, I want to watch that. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a pretty cool explanation, actually. So that leads me to to the stuff that I was reading about, which is um, encryption using quantum computers. Like, it's basically. Uh, let me read the title here. It's entanglement-based secure quantum cryptography, and this is done um, in a very interesting way. So the one of the uh, one of the unique characteristics of quantum computers of, or quants uh, quantum particles is a property called entanglement, which is when you connect two quantum particles together, whatever you do to one of them, it's going to reflect in the other one, like identical simultaneously, instantaneously, right? So instantaneously. this is the one force that scientists right now think might be faster than the speed of light. Not sure, but could be, correct? Exactly, exactly. So this has been known, like, uh, research has been done around this for, like, ages, uh, ages, not really ages, but the past years, uh, most efforts around quantum entanglement have been focused around getting uh, distance between those quantum particles. So how do you achieve that entanglement over greater distances? So the latest effort that I read was actually from last summer, last September or something. Some researchers published uh, a paper um, where they, they used the satellite to generate two entangled photons and you know, send them both down to two ground stations, two laboratories, 1100 kilometers uh, apart and they they think that these two they kept their entanglement so whatever you would do to one of them it will reflect in the other one so what they think about this like one of the use cases is what if we replace the secret keys and the standard public private keepers that we know of with entangled cryptography like what if your secret key is that unique entangled quantum bit 
Like that, that is so mind blowing. Yeah, I mean it's it's really a breakthrough when you think about it. Like so, so I I'm I'm a simple minded person. We were talking about this before. Like imagine think of like one time passwords, right? Yeah. That's effectively this. It would be real time. Yep. One time passwords for both sides of the transaction. And, and literally it could only be you and it could only be them. And if they match, you know, you're yep. allowed it. It's, it's incredible. Like for me, it, it, it almost like borders on magic. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it's something that you cannot intercept it. It's not going through any relays. It's not being, it's not being um, rerouted through servers in China or Russia or US or wherever. So it cannot be stream to to youtube or whatever we were talking about before so it's it's quite interesting i mean quantum computers are like whole different level there's a million uses for them but this one thing really caught my eye when i was reading it the other day i mean it's all it solves a lot of those problems and and i think what you were talking about too you know the fear of of mainstream you know uh the public getting access to quantum computing and then being able to just brute force every single, you know, like weak, which we'd have to call now weak security system out there. Um, You know, it's, it would be like just suddenly saying, take your front door off your house (laughs) and anybody that wants to come in, just, you know, allow them, allow them in basically. Um, That's a real risk. And there's a lot of like money and assets at stake by, you know, that particular technology sort of becoming mainstream and, and making it irrelevant. The great thing about tech though, is that, you know, right on the heels of something about to become irrelevant is the next thing. (laughs) And it feels like this is, this might be one of those in the article that you found. And again, we'll put this in the, in the show notes so everybody can, can have a look. It's pretty, it's pretty heady stuff. Like the abstract is understandable. And then it quickly dives off a cliff into the science. So unless you're really into that. Yeah, <laughs> chances are. Yeah. Um, but I'm just curious, like, if there's been any any talk about, like, what an actual implementation of this might look like. You know, right now it's theoretical. Or, no, it's not theoretical. Sorry. It's in practice. But it's in the lab setting, right? Yeah. And it's in, it's in, you know, satellites that I'm sure you know, our, our government controlled and things like that. Is there any discussion of like what mainstream might look like, or is it too early? I think it's too early. Like being, um, my like completely uneducated guess and like just, a just a normal average Joe thinking is that we're still a few decades away from being, uh, from having to actual everyday usage of quantum computers. And by everyday usage, I don't mean like surfing the web, but softwares that do some kind of calculations to use it on a on a daily stuff, like on a regular basis. So I think we're still a couple of decades away from that. The, the reason, that being said, actually, there's a couple of years ago even, I actually found that you can register on IBM they had a public access to a, to a quantum computer. So you can register as a researcher and then try to run some code on it. And funnily enough, I, I found then, found then a, a tutorial and I actually wrote a, a piece of code. It wasn't anything too fancy, but I was happy with the fact that that piece of code actually got executed on a quantum computer, which is exciting in, in just the sense of it. That piece of code was just a simulation for uh, the Monty Hall problem. Was it the name mm. with the three doors and the yep. car? Yeah. So it's just a simulation. The, the software was that. Just run a simulation of like the percentages. It's a common like when you're studying uh, statistics and probability in university. It's one of the more common exercises that they give you. But like the month, should you switch or should you stay? So this was yep. a piece of code that actually simulated that on a quantum computer and why it was uh, better on a quantum computer because the information that you stored for each of those doors on the Monty Hall problem you actually stored it in a qubit so this door was one third of a zero this one was two thirds of a one 
So it's it's actually pretty interesting. Yeah, it's it sounds like it. And it, out here I was thinking like the traditional, you know, program that you write is always hello world. But I guess in quantum it would be like hello and goodbye at the same time. Yeah, pretty much. Like, yeah. <laughs> all different states at the same time, right? So Yep. The entire conversation no, at the same time. That's that's really that's really interesting stuff. So thanks for sharing that. As as um, Darko mentioned, we'll we'll drop this in the show notes and kind of keep track of it. I mean, if it's decades long, I'm sure the DevNo podcast isn't going to be able to keep up with it forever. But this is this is kind of in the realm of like tech and science that interests me so much, right? I think one of the things that's really cool about this because uh, we've done history lessons on the show in the past, the math for quantum entanglement is old. It's like Einstein, yeah, yep. old. Right. So over 100 years, um, 2020, yeah, 2021 now. So it's over 100 years old. And the interesting thing about the genius of that guy is that his math is still right. It's yep. just taken it's taken technology this long to prove it, which is un, it's so mind blowing to me. Yeah. <laughs> the level of this stuff. But um, now, you know, we're on the cusp of seeing some of this stuff play out in practice in a, in a very usable way, right? Like, you know, we always, if you're an Elon fan, if you're a tech fan or whatever, there's always a discussion about space and, you know, um, exploration and all that. But there are very real, like, physics problems involved there. For example, the speed of light, right? If that is governing the speed in the universe, um, and you need to do something ins instantaneously over distance. You just, you simply can't, right? Yeah. But with quantum entanglement, the theory is, is that whatever force that is, and I'm, you know, too stupid to understand this, <laughs> um, somehow okay. is able to go faster than the speed of light. And that in my brain is just like a, it's such a mind blow. I love, I love thinking about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, it's not like reading when you start getting into this, it's, it's very addictive because one article leads to the other, another, and you click in a sublink in that one, and like then it, you're down a rabbit hole. But it's it's very interesting to read, and it's one of my my favorite topics to read about in in tech. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing. Um, as I've stated multiple times now, all of the articles that are source material for this show will be put into the show notes. That's pretty much a wrap for episode nine. Um, episode 10, we're, we're going to welcome Fede back to the fold. It's been a busy couple of months for everyone here in the U.S. as, as the winter drags on and COVID and all that. Um, with that, thanks for listening. The DevNell Podcast is a bi-weekly science and technology podcast brought to you by Darko Klincharski, Brent Kastner, and Fede Zagarzazu. Hey, and if you guys have any feedback for our show, do let us know. You can find our contact details in the show notes. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, have a great day.